Bibi Fahodier, welcome to the African Liberation Media Podcast. Media solely focused on the liberation and empowerment of African people. I'm your host, Gullah Jack, aka Russell Swilly. Let's get to it. Bibi Fahodier, this is Russell A. Swilly, Gullah Jack. I'm here with Brother Amos and Brother Macaroo. First, at the top, we want to pay homage to our brother who was laid to rest today, Brother Dwayne Collins. He of various organizations. I met him in the 90s when he was a member of Citizens for Justice. Rest in power. Arche, Arche. Brother Dwayne. We're here at the African Liberation Media. We will engage in a scientific soul session. One of many, that's a phrase coined by one of the most famous political prisoners, the implacable Maroon, Russell Maroon Schultz. We'll get into him, uh, talk about his life, his indomitable spirit, a brother held in solitary confinement, primarily because of his political ideological beliefs, implacable because he is for lack of a better term, indomitable, incapable of becoming domesticated or co-opted. Okay, he uh, was basically a brother who was inspired by Malcolm X, became a revolutionary warrior, one of the best in the mode and tradition of George Jackson, Nat Turner, Gabriel Prosser, Denmark Vesey, fed up with the idea that state-sponsored violence, we were being destroyed by state-sponsored violence uh, as if it were a national pastime. Listen to some of his thoughts. He says, you know, once again to reiterate, the maroon will not be domesticated or co-opted. Second point he makes, very poignant point, you can be put in prison for refusing to be the bad guy. You know, in a real sense, we identify many of the political prisoners, Brother Maroon Schultz, George Jackson, Mumia Abu-Jamal, and many other political prisoners, uh, brothers who we should be discussing in terms of their ideology, vis-a-vis discussions of Jay-Z or the managerial class. Jay-Z, of course, dresses like a proletariat in the Marxist sense, but he is a billionaire, a part of the managerial class, suffice it to say. Uh, <clears throat> moving on, um, we are still in Black August, uh, talking about Maroon Schultz. This brother escaped from the Huntington prison and actually survived off the land for 27 days. Uh, he is the type of brother who the system fears. These types of warriors are exposed to the most horrific conditions, all designed to destroy them psychologically. Techniques known as sensory deprivation, where you can be exposed to extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme illuminated light, extreme darkness, extreme noise, in extreme silence, but in spite of this, the maroon persists. Brothers, take it away. Um, we recognize the significance of Black Caucus here at the African Liberation Media. Ashe, Ashe Gullah Jack. Um, indeed, today we did have the um, homegoing ceremonies for uh, one of uh, our most uh, consistent and persistent activists here in the uh, Charlotte community, uh, Brother Dwayne Collins. Uh, I remember, I don't know, it might have been sometime in the late 80s, early, early 90s perhaps, probably early 90s, um, I happened to uh, be watching the news and there was this brother on, something that happened in one of our um, uh, low-income communities, Dalton Village uh, at the time. And this brother was down there 
and he was speaking, and he had on a a black beret, reminded me of my days in the Black Panther Party, and he said he was with a group called the Messengers of Truth. I found out later that this organization started on the campus of Johnson C. Smith University, and um, being a veteran activist, of course, whenever I see our youth stepping up to to the plate, then I was inspired. I didn't meet the brother at the time, but we had a series of police killings, a series of state-sponsored violence against unarmed African-Americans in the 1990s. Wendy Gale Thompson, mm -hmm. a sister shot by a CMPD police officer by the name of Mark Farmer. And then uh, there was the uh, killing of James Willie Cooper, who was actually riding uh, with his uh, daughter in the car when he was stopped. He got out the car. The police said he was fumbling through his pockets. Amazingly, <laughs> amazingly, I think almost is going to talk about something that shows you how uh, just absolutely the total prejudice and you know how white white supremacist police officers respond to real white criminals versus an unarmed brother riding around with his daughter. And then there was Carolyn Sue Bettiger. So. Brother Collins, Brother uh, Right Reverend, Brother Kojo Nantambu and others formed an organization called the Citizens for Justice. Chris Rudisil, some others, Sister Tina, a lot of others were, were involved in that. And we had a series of uh, protests, the largest of which was known as Black Monday, where we uh, actually shut down the center of the city of Charlotte. So uh, brother, brother Collins was... Uh, a true voice for justice in this city. And uh, his spirit will live on if we manifest the work that he did all over the years through the various organizations. He was also one of the prime organizers of the Million Man March. Here, We had a local organizing committee here in Charlotte led by uh, Brother Minister Robert Muhammad of the Nation of Islam and the aforementioned Kojo Nantambu, and this LOC was a true united front because it pulled together a lot of brothers from different uh, ideologies, right? You know, you had the, uh, the the more nationalistic type of brothers involved, and you had more moderate type of brothers and sisters involved. And Brother Collins was uh, one of the primary organizers, and we we went around the different uh, uh, areas. We went to down to Rock Hill and over to Gastonia and some other places to organize people to attend the march. So he was a true warrior, uh, in, in, in my opinion, on, only 51 years of age. And um, he'll be missed, but his spirit lives if we emulate the work that he was doing. Uh, Black August, today, very significant day because at midnight on August 30th, the revolutionary Gabriel Prosser and his brothers planned had had planned it was one of the most elaborate elaborately planned uh rebellions that we've ever that we've ever seen uh it, it, they were meticulous in the way they went about organizing uh this rebellion in the in the area of Richmond Virginia and um so I want to talk, uh, 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 read something from him about him from um, this book that I've literally torn apart reading, called "There's a River" by the great historian Dr. Vincent Harding, who I had the pleasure of meeting when I was a student at Morehouse. He was leading the Institute of the Black World, which was uh, right down the street, right down on Chestnut Street, which uh, has a different name now. It might be Brawley Drive. I can't remember, but. Uh, Dr. Harding wrote this book, which everybody should read. We got it right at the, as one of the top books uh, that uh, Brother Amos Capricara and I produced a reading list. And uh, if, if anybody's interested on, on any of our uh, various ways of communicating, just, uh, you know, let us know and we'll send, you, we'll send you this reading list. We have this book on there. There's a River, The Black Struggle for Freedom in America. This is one of the most important books, in my opinion, that uh, has been written. So I'm going to read a little bit of what, about what Dr. Uh, Harding said about uh, Gabriel Prosser. I just love the way this brother 
put words on paper. So he's talking about 1800 here. He says, as the new century began, it often appeared as if the future lay wholly, securely, with white men like these deniers of black rights, opponents of the development of black humanity. On the surface, the new age seemed only to have reinforced the old bondage now spreading across the land. But the white surfaces conceal many things, especially the insistent black river, steadily moving, beating against, and beneath the walls of slavery. In 1800, rising from under the surface, black people began to make it clear again that men and women born in slavery were not necessarily born to be slaves. That was the testimony from Henrico County, Virginia, where a group of Africans had been born into bondage mm. but had grown to love freedom. The three brothers had, gr had been given names which perhaps revealed the quiet, radical hope of their family, Solomon, Martin, and Gabriel, a biblical monarch, a religious leader, an angel of God. According to the law of Virginia and America, they were slaves, property of a tavern keeper named Thomas Prosser. Still, by the time they reached their 20s, these tall, sturdy young men knew they were meant to be free and they were prepared to wage hard and decisive struggle for that costly freedom, not only for themselves but for others as well. In the spring of 1800, the sharp, sometimes fiercely divisive sounds of the white Federalist and Republican debates echoed through the states. The Virginia brothers and their comrades began to organize among their people and the leadership finally passed into Gabriel's hands. At 24, he was the youngest and tallest, standing over six feet. With a dark complexion, prominent scars, and Ethiopian features, he was a striking figure. Later, he was described by the Virginia authorities as possessing courage and intellect above his rank in life. Mm. White authorities did not know Gabriel's rank in life, but his fellow Africans evidently did. For by the summer, he and his two brothers had gathered an impressive cadre of comrades for the proposed struggle. Under the cover of funerals and other black religious gatherings and in the hours after sundown when the exiled African community reaffirmed its integrity through singing and praying and loving and planning and escaping in those uh, times and hours, Gabriel presented his plan. It was so strategically simple and seemed sound. Several hundred men would make a surprise midnight, midnight attack on Richmond to capture arms, burn warehouses, and perhaps take the governor as hostage, thereby inspiring a general uprising among thousands of Africans. In addition to their own fierce determination to be free, Gabriel and his two brothers have been spurred by other models. Wherever they gathered, the young men spoke of the brilliant example of the Africans of San Domingo. Martin was a preacher, and he backed up Gabriel's love of Tucson with his own encouragement from scriptures. When doubts arrived, it was Martin who told the people that their cause was similar to the Israelites as he read the Bible. And then God says, if we worship him, five of you shall conquer a hundred and a thousand shall conquer your enemy and a hundred thousand and a hundred of thousands of your enemies. So, you know, this is this is how these these brothers, uh, you know, began to organize. Um, one of the group's lieutenants told a potential recruit named King, the Negroes are about to rise and fight the white people for our freedom. King's response was chilling and direct. I was never so glad to hear anything, never so glad to hear anything in my life. I could slay white people like sheep. At the same time, some sense the need for their struggle to maintain an essential continuity with the African past. So a key recruiter named George proposed that the conspirators make full use of particular gifts of those native-born Africans who have remained close to the cultic practices of the homeland, suggested that he hire his own time, travel down country to what was called the piping tree, and enlist the outlandish people, for they were supposed to deal with witches and wizards, and this would be useful in the armies to tell when calamity was about to befall them. They developed their own flag and they modeled it after the flag of the Haitian Revolution. It was called Death of Liberty. 
So at the end of August, uh, widespread organizing have, had evidently gone on among the black community of Enrico County and the surrounding areas. <coughs> Many of the rebels held regular transport jobs as boatsmen, carriage and wagon drivers, and so enjoyed mobility that was of great importance to their organizing. When the time for the attack came of council, what finally happened very, but certain matters are sure. At noontime, on the appointed day, it began to rain, and soon the worst storm in living, living memory broke over the area. The invasion of the city was called off by Gabriel when it was clear that several rivers and creeks were on the way to Richmond and would not be fordable, and that the planned operations would be imposed. And so what happened is what, hap what usually happens. Two race traders, two Negroes loyal to their master, when the uh, when the tropical storm hit, and they were not able to execute the the rebellion on the day they had planned, these two Negroes, one named Tom and the other one named Pharaoh, <laughs> ran to their master. Oh God! And uh, and told him, he alerted the governor of Virginia, James Monroe, and they called out the militia. Now, interestingly, Gabriel was able to escape. A white uh, boat captain apparently knew who he was and allowed him to get on his boat to transport him to the coast where I guess he hoped to maybe, you know, jump on another boat and leave the United States. But once again, a race trader. Now, the white, the, the white man is willing to risk himself, his boat, to take Gabriel to the coast. They were going to travel down, uh, I guess, the James River, whatever is whatever's up there, and... A Negro on the boat recognized Gabriel. And so when the boat reached its destination, he told the authorities, and that's how Gabriel was arrested. So once again, here, here, here we have a very elaborate plan, similar to the elaborate plan that would be laid out by Denmark VZ, Gullah Jack Pritchett, Rolla Bennett, and the other Africans, Peter Poyas, and other Africans that were involved in, the, uh, in, in VZ's rebellion very elaborate, would have struck a devastating blow. A devastating blow. 31 years before Nat Turner to chattel slavery. Fate intervened, and then you had the Negro traitors who uh, continue to devastate us today. But what we honor about these brothers, like the, the uh, Prosser brothers, Gabriel, Solomon, Martin, Prosser, Bob Farabee, another African revolutionary who is said to have directly inspired Nat Turner because his rebellion took place in Virginia in, in 1813. Nat Turner, Demarc Vesey, these others, you know, Gullah Jack Pritchett, these brothers are willing to lay their lives on the line to liberate their people, the same as Russell Maroon Schultz and others. And so uh, we honor them and... Um, we just want to always keep that spirit alive. And one way to keep it alive is by telling indeed. these stories. We have to tell these stories because our people don't know these stories. Our people, our people do not know these stories. So we have to tell these stories so that our people will know them. You know, brother, what comes to mind is uh, something our esteemed sister, Dr. Marimba Ani, passes on to you. It says, she, she writes... It does not matter if the European is present or not. If we carry the Urugu virus as its host, well, then we will behave like the European. In a real sense, and this is a phrase she coins, we carry what she describes as cultural AIDS. Mm. Mm. <laughs> wow. So, you know, not, not only that, and uh, sister, I hope you're listening, uh, Dr. Ghani, uh what does culture do for you? You know, it brings order into chaos. It makes cooperation natural. You know, the sister says, it is a system of accountability. Listen to this, brother. This is beautiful right here. Culture is the, is, is the Petri dish for producing and cultivating Africans. Exactly. Yes, sir. And so, and, that, and that's why, see, that's why, not, 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 you know, I don't know... Uh, the the details of, of the brothers that were with with Nat Turner, 
but I'm but I'm sure there were there, there were some brothers that that were grounded in traditional African culture, and so it it uh, you know Dr. Harding is talking about the fact that 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 the uh, Prosser brothers sought out some brothers who had just arrived. Yes, sir. Yes, from sir. the continent. Selective, scientific, yeah. and selection. Uh, Denmark Vesey was in the church. He was in the church, uh, Mother Emmanuel, that Dylan Roof uh, committed his massacre in. He was doing his organizing there. But he knew Gullah Jack Pritchett uh-uh. as an Angolan priest Come on. who taught out in the woods traditional African spirituality. See, this is one of the things Sterling Stuckey points out in his book, Slave Culture. Our people may have said, they may have used Christianity as a front, but when they got off to themselves, they were practicing traditional African culture. And that's why Du Bois says at the, at, in, in 1865, at the end of slavery, out of 4 million Africans, only about 400,000 identified as Christian. 10%. So in each case, Gabriel Prosser, uh, Denmark Vesey with Gullah Jack Pritchett, and I'm sure Nat Turner, because Nat Turner spent time in the Dismal Swamp where they practiced traditional Africa. They, they weren't in the Dismal Swamp worshiping Jesus, okay? <laughs> I believe in religious tolerance. Worship God in whatever context you choose. But I'm just saying, if you, we're talking about liberation here, okay? And so, you know, this is what these brothers relied on, and that's what Dr. Arne yeah, yeah, sir. was talking about. And uh, th- this brings us to Dr. Ture, you know, who told us that in a revolution there is no time for sentiment. You know, when it comes to these religious doctrines and ideology, a lot of times we get caught up in sentiment. You know, I know Brother Amos can uh, probably take off on that, but what you also mentioned, brothers, is is the dual consciousness that Du Bois so well articulated in the uh, practice of African culture, but the necessity of navigating oneself through this European milieu as a front. So uh, we wear the mask of grinning and lies. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so much to say, you know, so much to do, so little time. Uh, you know, suffice it to say, uh, the European leaves nothing to chance. Uh, I am reminded of Henry Cabot Lodge. Oh, my God. Brother. <laughs> oh, Lord. Who saw the dangerous sentiments permeating in the African community. And what he did, brothers, was that he observed African-American art. Uh, most notably, uh, the great uh, Langston Hughes or uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and several others. We wore the mask of grinning and lies. Uh, Hughes raising an open-ended question that was never answered. You know, does it drive like a heavy load or does it explode? You know, now you're talking about the artists who are really not conveying rhythm, rhyme, or reason, you know, just truncated burst. Hmm. But what um, Lodge observed became a part of the uh, congressional records. You know, suffice to say they leave nothing to chance. Nothing. You know, you were talking about bookstores coming over here and how Hoover spied on uh, African African bookstores. Exactly. Yes, yeah. sir. He put, he put book uh, African-American bookstores under... COINTELPRO, he said they were in extreme danger. Bookstores. I mean, who could believe this in 2019 <laughs> that Africans were reading, were going in bookstores? I mean, I, I was telling Gullah Jack that uh, I was in New York, and this, this sister that I, that I was in school with had been telling me about this bookstore on Lenox Avenue, Liberation Bookstore. And... Uh, I don't know if I, I didn't get this one there. I think this I got this at the Shrine of the Black Madonna. But anyway, uh, so I told her, I said, I got, you know, you got to take me to this bookstore. So anyway, we got to, we're at New York at this, in New York at this conference. So we catch the subway and go down to Harlem. 
and uh, walked down Lenox Avenue. I walk in this bookstore, and my mind is blown completely out the water. I did not have enough money <laughs> to buy all of the books I wanted to buy. I have never seen anything like that, even at the height of the Shrine of the Black Madonna, where I got a lot of books in the 1990s, uh, the Liberation Bookstore. But, yeah, um, definitely Hoover said, man, look, we got we to gotta control what these people are reading. This is too dangerous. This is too dangerous. But go ahead, Brother Almost. I know you got a lot of a lot of stuff that came up. Yeah, a few stories this week that took place. One uh, in Killing, Virginia, Matthew Thomas Bernard, a white male, was arrested after police said he killed his mother, his sister, and his sister's child. I believe it was his niece. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a shotgun. Um, but before Bernard was taken by police... There's a video that showed him running around naked. Oh, my God. uh, Running directly at police officers, charging police officers. And the police officer uh, who was in the situation was actually running away from Bernard, who was naked. And in his hands, he had an AR-15. So here we have a situation where the officer is fleeing. He must be in fear for his life. (laughs) But yet he chose not to pull the trigger. Now, many of, many of you came to social media. You know, some of the Negroes came to social media uh. um, <laughs> trying to rationalize this footage that we saw. Oh, my God. And some of the rationalizations were that because the officer knew that he was naked, he knew that he didn't have a weapon, so he didn't have to pull the trigger well. Mm. Uh, there are also stories cir- circulating on social media that pointed out the fact that there were four black men uh, in the past four years who have been shot by police officers who are in a similar situation, although these black men were not murderers or criminals, they were just dealing with mental illness. But they were too naked, and they were shot and killed by the police. One was Anthony Hill, uh, who was killed by the police. Um, and this was also in Virginia, Marcus David Peters, a naked black man who was running around uh, dealing with a mental illness, was killed by the police. Uh, another teenager, David Joseph, 17, was naked, um, and he was also killed by the police. And then another black man in Oklahoma whose uh, name was Isaiah Lewis. He was also 17 years old. Now, this white male Bernard was 18 at the time, so this is a striking comparison. Uh, when you look at the facts... There's no way you can rationalize the fact that this officer should have should not have um, shot his weapon. He should have he should have fired his weapon the same way that you know black men and black women are being killed. But of course, we can see the contradiction because they value their own lives, so they're not going to kill a white European. They would rather save that person and take him in so that they can have their day in court. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I want to say uh, today, being August 30th, that we, we, we're actually on this podcast, is also the Earth Day of our great ancestor, Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I definitely want to give the eye of Heru to that great ancestor who had the revolutionary spirit, uh, who was also betrayed by uh, a Negro mm-hmm. FBI informant. Exactly. Which led to his assassination. Mm-hmm. Another story that's popular now in the news is the wildfires that are happening in the Amazon. And uh, for those of you who are not aware of the importance of the forest in the Amazon, it is supposed to be uh, responsible for at least 20% of the world's oxygen. Um, So Europeans are saying that these fires have been started by farmers, you know, who are burning um, fires uh, to clear out land for crops. Uh, but we know that, you know, farmers have been doing that for a long time. So now all of a sudden, you know, there's these massive wildfires. Hmm. And at the same time, when these wildfires are taking place, um, French president, uh, I can't remember his first name, but uh, Macron. Yeah, Macron. Macron. Yeah. Uh, he came out and offered $20 million 
uh, towards paying for resolution to put these fires out in Brazil. So the Brazilian president uh, rejected those those funds. Now the Brazilian president is also a European. So here you have these two Europeans who are deciding the fate or have the power to decide the fate of what could possibly happen with these fires in the Amazon. But they're beefing over some comments that went uh, south on social media. Uh, I guess there was a verbal attack on uh, Macron's wife. Mm. Uh, and if you saw a picture of Macron's wife, you would understand why no, a lot God. of people may have attacked her. I mean, I already think that white women are ugly, but this is a real ugly white woman. <laughs> but um, the the key to this story, though, is that at the same time, Macron is also offering money to the Congo because it's been reported that there are also massive wildfires happening right now in the Congo that are bigger than the fires that are happening in the Amazon. Interesting. So these two areas of the world um, are very important to the ecosystem. And um, whenever I see Europeans offering aid, it's an immediate red flag because these are the same people that offered the Native Americans blankets mm. that contain smallpox. Mm. These are the same people that offered Africans at Tuskegee Institute a test for quote-unquote bad blood, and they gave him syphilis. These are the same people that went down into Africa with a polio vaccine and infected a lot of people with AIDS. So anytime they come bearing gifts, you have to ring the alarm and, and, and sit back and question what is their plan because Europeans only offer aid when it benefits them. So what benefit is France going to receive from offering aid to Brazil and also to Africa? Yeah, I saw the story about the, the fires in, on the continent and so I started, I started doing some research on that because one, one guy said that the fires in, on the continent were worse than the fires in the Amazon. And, of course, all of these rainforests are critically important because they absorb carbon dioxide and then give out oxygen, right? So uh, the one report I saw said that that the fires in Africa were just the normal fires that, that take place every year. Um, that was one report, of course. Now, you have, to, you have to dig through a whole lot of information to try to find out. And that particular report said the fires didn't affect uh, the rainforest in the Congo. Um, so I don't know. They, they said they were in Angola, uh, the Congo Republic, Gabon, and then somewhere in the DRC. But, but at any rate, I mean, the the question we have to, we all we in in this in in the current environment, the clo the current global environment, and and the 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 climatic crisis that's taking place, as uh, what will probably be a Category Four. Hurricane hits Florida with 140 mile per hour winds. Uh, probably early next week, it's going to, supposed to rake across the Bahamas, and uh, then hit Florida. And who knows where it goes from there? The waters, you know, uh, according to climatologists, July was the hottest month ever recorded in the history of the Earth. Now I don't know. You wouldn't know what the climate was two million years ago. But anyway, since they've been keeping these records, they said July was the hottest month. And what ha what has happened is that uh, these waters closer to the coast are warmer. And so 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 that the, the hurricane feeds off of moisture and warm water. And so that's one reason why these these hurricanes are so devastating now, because 
And, and it's not that we haven't had more powerful hurricanes, but it's the frequency. The frequency of the hurricanes and the amount of water that they are dropping you know, because it's not, it's, it, the, the, you have the wind damage and then you have, you have the water damage. And so given that, it's reasonable to believe that some of these fires that are taking place and if, when they're taking places in countries who have corrupt governments and by, by all uh, uh Analyst, the current president of, of Brazil is uh, is a guy that uh, is, is attempting to emulate the capitalist class in Europe and America, just destroying the environment in order to uh, generate profits for businesses. So that he blamed the farmers for clearing land. But as Brother Almost said, farmers have been clearing land forever. And they, they know how to clear land without causing fire. So, you know, with the, with, the, with the elevated temperatures and whatnot, it's reasonable to assume that the climate. So there was this argument between these two guys, and Donald Trump, of course, backed the guy in Brazil and said that he, the United States wasn't contributing any money to help put the fires out. So, uh, you know, this, this is the kind of situation we're in with this uh, unfettered capitalism that's uh, just, uh, you know, wrecking havoc on the planet mm -hmm. because they don't care. They, no. absolutely, they absolutely don't care. I mean, it's just, uh, uh, you know, the Oedipus complex, the Cronus complex, whatever you want to call it. They just, they just don't care. Uh, and I also wanted to add on the first story that I talked about in regards to the police officers not shooting the white the white male. One of the things that I often hear a lot when we talk about fighting against the European, I often hear doubt, reasons why we feel we can't win or reasons why we <coughs> feel we're not prepared like they are to, to take them on in a a quote-unquote war. And the ironic thing about that is at the same time where we look at ourselves and don't think that we can beat them, their actions prove that they don't feel that they can beat us. Hmm. Because if you have to... Anybody knows that if somebody pulls a gun, that person doesn't believe that they can beat you. So they have to result to the use of a weapon to defeat you. So it's almost like if you have a bully that's bullying a child and the child comes back to school with a gun and shoots the bully, the reason why the child shot the bully instead of fighting the bully is because they didn't feel that they can actually win that fight. Mm. So Europeans are telling us on a daily basis every time they, they kill us, they're telling us that we have to kill them because we don't believe we can beat them. Mm. We have to discriminate against them because we don't believe that we can beat them. We have to oppress them because we don't believe that we can beat them. So as soon as we gain the confidence in ourselves and know that we can win, it'll happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, Dr. Wilson's spin on it is that the, um, that the, the white man's fear of genetic annihilation, mm -hmm. right, represented by the uh, sexual organs of the black male, which uh, is capable of producing children of color, whereas the white man isn't, then the gun becomes, you know, his tool for genetic survival. Uh, I, think, I think there's one other lesson here. And, you know, we saw it with, uh, you know, this, 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 this triple, triple homicide suspect in Virginia we also saw it with, uh, God, I can't remember the guy's name now. We got it on our Facebook page. Uh, the guy in Dayton, Ohio, who had just uh, gotten out of prison, had, had just been released on parole, and he was riding with his father. He stabs his father. His father got out the truck, walking down the street with blood all over him. 
takes his father's truck, wrecks it. The police come up on the scene. They put the guy, they don't handcuff the guy. They don't handcuff him. And they place him in the passenger seat of the car. And the guy jumps over the passenger seat into the driver's seat. What does the police officer do? He pulls out his taser and tries to tase the guy. Now, when I was watching this on the CBS News video, I knew the guy had to be white. Mm -hmm. I hadn't done the Absolutely. research to find out who he was at that time. And the reason why I say that is because Wendy Gale Thompson was driving her own car. A police officer tried to stop her. He said she pulled off and was dragging him. He was hanging onto the passenger side of the car. And from point blank range, he pulled his gun and shot Wendy Gale Thompson in the head. 32-year-old black woman, mother of two or three children, right here in Charlotte. Carolyn Sue Bettiger was riding in a car with a guy that came up on a, a license check and he decided to keep going. The police fired 23 shots into that car. They fired, I may have these numbers backwards, but they fired 11 shots when the car was coming towards them and 12 shots when the car was going away. And Carolyn Sue Bettiger, this was in 1997, I think it was, was shot in the back of the head. So what this guy does in, in Dayton, Ohio, which has already just suffered a mass shooting, he takes off in the police car. He pulls off and knocks the police officer down. The stupid police officer was standing there by the door. The door was open, so when he pulled off, he knocked the officer down. He backed into a car and then turned around and the police, another police cruiser was trying to chase him. He backs into that police cruiser, stops him cold. Then he takes off. He wasn't in Dayton at the time. He was some in a suburb, Riverdale or something. He is riding through the middle of Dayton, Ohio, doing almost 100 miles per hour. There's a family, a lady with seven children in a car, a van. She had just dropped, uh, one of the kids had just dropped some books off at a library. This fool smashes into them and kills two six-year-old children. I think both of them were white. So now this guy, he stabbed his white father, killed these, these two children, all because the police wouldn't use force to stop him. But Wendy Gale Thompson killed. Carolyn Sue Bettiger killed. And I, and I bet if we go through it, Sean Bell in New York, he was in a car. They fired 50 shots mm -hmm. into the car Sean Bell was in. Okay? So they don't hesitate, right, to use force. Philando Castile in a car. But but here's what I think. Here's what I think the deeper psychology is. And that is, and I almost said this, they are determined to preserve white life. And I think the message to us is this. A lot of people think that when this American empire collapses and these uh, MAGA people and others go berserk, the Proud Boys and all these others go berserk and start singling us out because they got to have scapegoats, that law enforcement is going to put these people down. Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> Not necessarily. So don't be dependent on that. I mean, the cracker didn't even put the the the, the, the uh, white boy down when he was attacking another uh, white white man a in old, uh, Virginia. An old white man, an old white man coming, a janitor in the church. He just got off his job at the church, and he comes out. This naked naked white boy starts beating up this old white man, and the police officer doesn't even stop the assault. I mean, this this is. Tamir Rice had two seconds, less than two seconds, 
to try to respond to some kind of demands. You know, right, Dan Queers Franklin had, what was it, 46, 54 seconds. He said, you told me to put the gun down. Killed. Killed. These mass killers, if they don't kill themselves, they get arrested. I mean, Take similar, Dylan Roof to the Burger King. It's similar, it's similar to you going in, going outside and you seeing a dog versus you going outside and you seeing a snake. And I know people have all of these, you know, ideas, bad ideas, that they think snakes are bad because of the Bible and all stuff like that. But nonetheless, a snake is, it is inside of the ecosystem just like all the rest of us. Mm-hmm. But you feel comfortable with that dog, so you you spare his life. Even if that dog is attacking you, and the, and the pit pit bulls definitely kill more people than snakes. Right. So, <laughs> so that snake could be retreating, could be running away, but you're not gonna rest assured until you know that snake is not coming back or he's dead. Exactly. That's how they see us. When they see us, they see something that they're afraid of because they don't they don't think that in our at our strongest point they don't believe they have the capacity to beat us and i also i agree with dr wilson in her assessment of them doing this to make sure that they have genetic survival i also think that a lot of it has to do with they just outright fear the black man and woman, the black race. Well, th- th- absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, <clears throat> this whole MAGA explosion, you know, underneath it all, that's, um, I think there's a mentality to make white superior again. You know, they, uh, police officers dragging a brother by way of the rope, you know, harkens back to the antebellum South. You know, this, this bogus argument that permeates maybe white academia, white communities, uh, the white mentality for sure that blacks had acquired equity with whites, you know, which has a debilitating effect on their psychology, you know, based on the fact that they may observe a few uh, black icons, you know, who have risen to prominence. And, you know, just based on a bogus argument, you know, the perception is is that they are the victims of racist attacks. You know, it, it's hard for them to perceive themselves as racist when, you know, according to Tufts University, they perceive themselves as being the victims of racism. You know, up in Charlottesville, you know, Jews will not replace us. You know, and of course, even when you have a reformer, you know, in, the high, in what is referred to as the highest office of the land, you know, this in their minds, you know, is evidence of the fact that, uh, you know, they're no longer in a superior position. So, you know, in a real sense, uh, Herr Fuhr, Khan Dunn, the short-fingered Bulgarian, he is absolutely what the uh, right-wing white supremacist ordered. Well, but he... he- He's a manifestation of, you know, I've been working on his blog post. I don't know why it's taking me so long to get it out. But he's just a manifestation of the ideas that they've they've espoused for, you know, if if not thousands of years, certainly it's, it's, it's been, you know, acutely articulated in mm-hmm. the last 500 plus years. I mean, you have... Benjamin Franklin, mm-hmm. right, slave owner, saying, you know, why why are we planting the sons of Africa in the United States when we have such a fair chance? You know, Benjamin Franklin, when he wrote this, I think it might have been in 1750, he recognized then, he said, we are a small minority of people on the planet Earth. Mm-hmm. This is what what Franklin said. Come on, come on, brother. And he said we 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 need we need to be expanding our numbers. We need to be expanding our numbers. And they did it by way of immigration, brother. 
and they did and, and and they and they did about then they did about way of immigration so 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 Trump is a manifestation of this 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 current that this this is this part of the DNA yes sir of the American psyche right and so I mean there's no difference between him and Abraham Lincoln and Roger Tawney and Jed Hoover. I mean it it's just all part of the same stream that's uh, that's been continuous in these years since we have been disempowered by these uh, barbaric systems of white supremacy right mm -hmm. I mean and and, and 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 that's and that and that's really what it's about because uh when Africans had, when we when we had the power to defend ourselves, you know, like we did, you know, in ancient Kemet for thousands of years, and a lot of people have, you know, some historians have said that if if they had, if the Europeans had launched this attack, this assault on Africa, a hundred years earlier, they would have absolutely been defeated. By the by the Mali Empire, they would have, they would have absolutely been defeated, and so, you know, things have just uh, just worked that way, and 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 I understand the focus, because 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 it it is a fact that they have been more emboldened, yes sir, by you know this guy that that you know espouses you know he speaks the language. I mean, one of the problems is we haven't come to a collective conclusion that we need to deal with it because I, I really don't think we really understand how they feel when they see us. When they mm. see us, they see. Imagine how you feel when you walk into your kitchen and you see a roach on the wall. Mm. Are you going to try to listen to that roach about why he deserves a right to be in the kitchen? Mm. No. You're going to find whatever you can find, whether that's your shoe, whether that's whatever you can find, to kill it before it runs. I know some of y'all may never have roaches, but. <laughs> kill it before it multiplies. I'll say this. Say when they it, see us, they see roaches. They see rats. They see everything that they feel should be exterminated. And we have to begin to see them in that same light. We got to see them like we see the mosquito, a nuisance. Yeah, you know, what we have to do is we have to, you know, develop, you know, we have to develop the power to neutralize their capacity to impose their will upon us because the fact that they're going to see us like that. But we're not going to, in order for us to get to that point, to, to be able to neutralize the power, we got to understand and this is important while we do this, what we're doing right now, you know, raising people's conscience, but we got to understand the condition for what it is. It's almost like we are a worm inside of the belly of a bird saying, I can just, I, you know, I can change the system from the inside. You know, yeah. a, a couple of things, brother. Um, Harry X. Davidson from out in uh, Kansas City um, wrote a couple of books. Somebody's trying to kill you. Mm. Uh, I have not seen it in print of lately, but to your point, brother, and, and we um, just uh, we were talking about brother Collins earlier. I know he tried to work from the inside. You know, the the question, one of the questions, you know, for me has always been, what is the role of the traditional? Politician, you know, in other words, what usually ends up as co-optation, uh, self-aggrandizement, uh, working for the oppressor, uh, the corporate entity that supports that male or female. Incidentally, I did not vote for the mayor yesterday. Uh, in for well, I have my personal reasons. Uh, what is the role? Because see, I remember Dr. Ture, He definitely said that. Um, the person on the inside has a role. And one of the things he highlighted was that, you know, was to go to the power structure and say, I want X, Y, and Z. You know, else I'm going to put 100,000 people, 10,000 people in the street. You know, you know. And I think, I think that can be done 
when you combine it with the overall picture of freedom and sovereignty. But when you isolate that and you say that this is the solution for, for, for black people, that's when it's a problem because you're not going to really solve the problem. Yeah, that's not the solution. But if, but if you're working with, you know, the freedom fighters who have the ultimate goal of making us liberated completely, then that person on the inside can be a benefit. And you know, and uh, I, I really hate to use a European example, but um, you're talking about this underground army over in Ireland. Uh, and then there was a group called Sinn Féin, I believe. You know, one group would make an above ground demand, I'm sorry, over the ground demand. And then the other ground, the other group working underground would uh, exact a political consequence if that legitimate demand was not met. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, uh, the Irishman's name. Uh, it, it escapes me right now. Uh, Jerry Adams hmm. from years back. You know, now there was never any connection publicly in the mainstream media, probably for uh, public consumption purposes. But, you know, it was not uh, totally ironic that when a demand was made and not adhered to, there was always a political consequence. You know, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, uh, well, I shouldn't, uh, Africans in Babylon here. Yeah, see, that's the problem when you have people like ADOS, you know, who vehemently attack Pan-Africanism, you know. That's the problem. Then that's when the, the problem arises from that type of solution because to me, when you, when you talk about what is unity, unity is not everybody liking each other or agreeing with each other. If you want to be unified about anything, it should be about improving the conditions of African people in the diaspora and on the continent and working towards complete and total liberation and sovereignty. Yes, sir. Now, And the Maroons put forth that idea. I mean, and, and sometimes you're going to have to put out fires within your own race. That's what Norma had to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not always going to be easy, but it's, it, it's, a, it's an understanding that we have to have, a couple of understandings we have to have. Number one, we have to understand who our enemy is, what they're capable of, and how they feel about us and why that will never change. That's the first thing. Number two, mm -hmm. we have to understand what we have to do for ourselves to gain the power so that what they are doing does not affect us. Mm -hmm. And I think if you go into it with that mentality, then we can win. Yeah, and that was, um, yeah, as I stood there in the church today, uh, observing Brother Collins, that was the thing that occurred to me. This brother has transitioned without Africans in Charlotte, uh, never having achieved that key element, power. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that was the thing I was probably struck by the most. You know, it's um, that would be a significant part of my bucket list is the transition. Uh, knowing that Africans have achieved power, period. I Game, say. set, match. I say. Yes, sir. Yeah, we just have to understand that, you know, the, the, the struggle is protracted. You know, it's, it's not smooth. It doesn't go in straight lines. And, uh, you know, there are always going to be dips and curves and, 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 and things that take place. But, you know, Dr. Hardin, one of the things he was saying was that, you know, sometimes – this river is 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 a mighty river like the Nile. Sometimes it's just a stream, but somebody has to be the stream because without the streams, you don't have a river. I shake. This has been the African Liberation Media. Wow. A baby for Holier. A baby for Holier. A baby for Holier. Power or the lack of power. I want to repeat this, power or the lack of power. If your education in this institution 
is not about gaining real power, not job, because your jobs do not represent power. Not getting elected, that does not represent power either. Uh, buying your houses and fine clothes does not represent power either. If it is not about real power, you are being miseducated and misled, and you will die educated and misled. If your study of black history is merely an exercise in feeling good about yourself, then you will die feeling good. The study of history then must be more than the pumping up of your self-esteem and the pumping up of your pride. Those things are important, but ultimately those things are not the means by which we will save ourselves as people in this world.